Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Dear friends in Christ, on this second Sunday of Easter, we begin a mostly continuous reading of John's first epistle. And the circumstances of John's writing are important for our understanding of the reading. Some had left the congregation. Scholars usually refer to them as the secessionists. John, however, labels them the Antichrist in chapter 2, verse 18. And then he continues, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. They gave in. They were persuaded by the culture, by the philosophical and religious dogmas of the day. John writes to assure those who remain, to confirm his readers in their faith, or perhaps better, his hearers. The letter was meant to be read publicly. Only about 10% of the population could actually read at the time. Instead, they listened. And there are a number of characteristics of this letter that encourage the hearer's retention of John's appeal. The prologue is crafted to capture the attention of the hearer with an audible series of ha ein ha akuamen ha erokamen in English, that which was, that which we heard, that which we see, a repetitious sounding of the same words. It's a clear purpose, has a clear purpose sentence, and the method of his writing helps us to remember. The first section, which is paragraphs two and three of our text, neatly lays out three challenges to the faith in a series of conditional statements. But to return to the prologue, John sets forth three underlying themes. The life, which he mentions three times. Fellowship, mentioned twice in the prologue and then twice more in the body of our text. But especially, and this is his purpose statement, joy. Verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. It's personal. That our joy may be complete. The antecedent of our, grammatically, is the we who write. As the last of the apostles and representative of the apostle, John finally puts pen to paper. It's not the royal we, it's the cumulative we. Luther, writing on John chapter 15, suggests that Christ pictures the apostles as a distinct from all other preachers and places such a stamp of approval on their message that all the world is to be bound to their word, believe it without contradiction, and be sure that everything they teach and preach is the pure doctrine and the message of the Holy Spirit, which they have heard and received from him. Close quote. In acknowledging what John writes later in verse 3, that you too may have fellowship with us, it is also our joy. The readers and hearers in the first generation and this generation. In fact, a number of manuscripts alter the text to read that your joy may be complete. This joy, this Easter joy, has a strong eschatological, a strong end times component. It's as if the joy we experience today has a tip of the iceberg quality about it. The bulk of it is hidden beneath the sea of sin and sorrow and stress of this present age. With the psalmist we can say, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Jesus prays to his Father 
concerning that future joy in the upper room with these words. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Between the prayer of Jesus in the upper room and John's prayer in our text stands the source of all Easter joy, the resurrection. Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. He is the propitiation for our sins, the atoning sacrifice that gives us access to the throne of heaven. But what is this joy, really? It's not an ephemeral feeling. It's not a passing emotion. It's not a smiley face that fades with the sun. It is rather a happy confidence in the reliability of God's promises. As Paul would write to the church at Corinth, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, that is in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Easter joy, real joy, is grounded in the fellowship that John writes about. The fellowship which we, the hearers, will have with John and the apostles. Fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, verse 3. And later in verse 7, fellowship with one another, i.e. the church. This community gathered around word and sacrament. A fellowship that was broken by the secessionists who departed. And the letter is evidence of John's pastoral heart. The beloved elder of the flock for his church in Ephesus and more broadly in Asia Minor. Those that left are like the embers pulled out of a bonfire. They soon dim and they will die. The body of the letter begins with three challenges to the fel this fellowship. While it's addressed to the first century audience, the same challenges are evident in our circumstances. There are three temptations to error. Verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. This is a frequent image in John, the contrast between light and darkness. He began the section by saying, God is light. In John's day, and in virtually universal terms, light was associated with excellence, purity, integrity, wisdom, and so on, and as such was an appropriate and commonly used symbol for the divine. But John expresses even more. That God is light suggests that he is one who desires to be known, and he has revealed himself, revealed himself in his Son. By contrast, to walk in darkness, as the secessionists had, is to follow the world, John doesn't enumerate their errors. Likely it included the question of Christ's divinity, and the sexual mores and practices of the day, the trade in idol worship and paraphernalia, which was the foundation for Ephesus' economy. To walk in darkness, in our terms, is to walk in hypocrisy. To say one thing and do another. To selectively apply God's word, in my case, in my circumstances, such as the self-centered ethos of our culture. All such walking in darkness, John summarily judges, we lie and do not practice the truth. Therefore, walk in the light as God is in the light. Light being known by our behavior's reference to God and his revealed will. Not that we do not sin, but we do not seek to hide that from God either. Rather that we seek to live in fellowship, forgiven fellowship, 
with him and with his son. The second temptation error we see in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, any such claim necessarily includes the claim to be without original sin. The Greek world of John's day identified all corruption with the physical as opposed to the spiritual self. Matter is bad, they thought. The body is a prison for the soul. The real self is the spirit. The body is temporal, the spirit eternal. This same pure spirit thinking is evident in our age. The assumed innocence of youth. The spurious or false distinction between sin and sinner. But scripture teaches otherwise. Psalm 51. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Luther, in the small called articles, writes, This inherited sin has caused such a deep and evil corruption of nature that reason does not comprehend it. Rather, it must be believed on the basis of the revelation in the scriptures. Psalm 51 we just read, or Romans 5, or Exodus 33, or Genesis chapter 6. Again, John's negative conditional statement is answered with a positive one. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's wonderful words included in the old liturgy, now Divine Service 3, as the preface to the absolution. I forgive you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. A third temptation to error we read in verse 10. If we say we have not sinned. In our day, we do this by either denying the authority of God's word or by limiting its applicability. What we do not consider a sin, or society does not consider a sin, is simply not sin in our book. Or we play the comparison game. I'm as bad as, and when I rehearsed this, I kept naming people that I shouldn't name, so you fill in the blank. <laughs> it's the prayer of the Pharisee. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, executioners, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. All a bunch of self-righteous nonsense. This time, there's no answering a pot with a positive conditional statement. Instead, there's an appeal to an advocate. My little children, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The word here is paraclete, literally one called to the side. It's connected to a court of law, but it also has a wider significance. The help of anyone who lends his presence to his friend. Any kind of help, of advocacy, intercession, mediation, he is simply one called to help. John writes to restore the fellowship that these heirs create, to make complete his joy, our Easter joy, through the blood of Jesus, his son, that cleanses us from all sin, verse 7. Henry Roald writes, The Christian life, namely walking in the light, does not consist of straining to, for a perfection that exists only in God. The Christian fellowship is a humbler fellowship, namely the fellowship of the forgiven children of God, and it's not a solitary walk, but a fellowship with each other and with the God who guides us in his light. Close quote. Or as Bonhoeffer puts it in Life Together, Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. 
It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. Our joy, Easter joy, is grounded in the reality of the propitiation for our sins. Chapter 2, verse 2. Propitiation, though, I suggest, is a bit of Christianese. It's words that we use that we really don't know the meaning. It means simply to make pleasing. We could also translate that expiation, which is a bit more Christianese, which means to take away the guilt of. But either of these speak from the same reality from an opposite perspective. Propitiation speaks about how God looks at us. Expiation talks about how we look at God. Perhaps a better translation would be atoning sacrifice. And in fact, our word in the text is the same word that the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses for the day of atonement. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus, our atoning sacrifice, brings us into fellowship with the Father and with each other. Easter joy is symptomatic of our life in Christ. Life, the overarching theme that John began this letter with. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Which is, of course, simply another name for Jesus, the word of life. Jesus claims that in John's gospel, twice in fact. I am the resurrection and the life, chapter 3. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Chapter 14, this is the message, John writes, that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. There's a missional component to this life, to living in the light. John encourages, he strengthens the challenged congregation to which he writes, but he encourages them and us to look beyond that as well. Jesus' atoning sacrifice is for all people, without regard to national citizenship or flag or skin and color of our skin, there are no limits, physically, mentally, emotional, abilities. There's no secret handshake. Only the water of baptism and those precious words, you are forgiven. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.